Here are some images you've likely never seen before. A steely Vladimir Putin berating the United States in a bellicose speech while glaring at one of his perceived enemies in the audience, Senator John McCain. And another shot of Putin as he humiliates Russian oligarchs, calling them cockroaches and demanding that one of them, a billionaire aluminum baron, sign a document in his presence and then giving a stern order, give me back my pen. That's only some of the arresting footage in an illuminating new documentary premiering this week about Russia's information warfare against Western democracies. The film is called Active Measures, and it documents the origins of Putin's hostility to the West, his rise to power in the Kremlin, and his revival of old KGB practices of disinformation, political assassinations, and the recruitment of agents of influence in the West. But the film controversially goes beyond that, alleging a lucrative money trail that flowed from powerful figures in Russia, including some sinister organized crime figures, into the welcoming arms of Donald Trump's real estate empire. As the filmmakers portray it, it's a financial flow replete with hundreds of millions of dollars in laundered cash concealed through offshore shell companies. And it may well explain Trump's fawning embrace of the Russian president. But do they have hard evidence of Trump's direct participation or knowledge of dirty Russian money pouring into his business? We'll discuss that with the filmmakers and with a top Democratic congressman who appears in the film and will give us his take on how it might play into the Russia investigation, all on today's Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just Russia say no is a it? ruse. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Uh, so, Danny, this film, Active Measures, is probably going to get uh, be getting a lot of buzz. Uh, I think there'll be a lot of talk about um, uh, the movie, particularly this uh, the, the claims about the money flow uh, to um, uh, to the president from, from Russia. But before we get to that, we should take note of uh, a couple of developments this week. Um, most prominently, uh, Don McGahn, the White House counsel, uh, the news is he will be leaving in the fall. And you can't uh, help but notice this comes not too long, barely a week uh, after the New York Times reported that McCann had been actively cooperating with Robert Mueller's Russia investigation and I think spent something like 30 hours being interviewed. In front of the grand jury, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, this was this was uh, uh, coming for a long time. Uh, there's, I think has to have been enormous tension between Don McGahn and Trump. Uh, McGahn, who who sees himself, uh, you know, as uh, the uh, lawyer for the White House and for the presidency, um, and um, Trump, who 
uh, can't get beyond, you know, this is, he's my lawyer. He's got to represent me. So, you know, what's he doing? Where's my Roy Cohen? Where's my Roy Cohen? Where's my Eric Holder, as as he he put it? Um, And so, uh, like, when Trump basically orders him to fire Mueller or fire uh, uh, Jeff Sessions um, and that doesn't happen, uh, you know, Trump was just pissed and i'm right. sure this has been festering with him for a long time yeah, yeah but think, think think about it i mean within the matter of a couple of days he learns that his white house counsel has been uh, uh spilling his guts to Mueller's prosecutors and, and his, his personal, personal counsel lawyer right. pleads guilty to multiple right. felonies and says some of them he did at the direction of donald trump yeah well this uh, goes to the point that when you when you are hired by donald trump to be his lawyer things generally don't <laughs> end well Either you end up before a grand jury or you end up uh, being owed a lot of money. <laughs> right. And, and, speaking, but, and let's not forget uh, the subpoena that's gone out uh, to um, uh, uh, to Alan Weisselberg, the accountant from the Southern District. Absolutely. A lot of people think that's the biggest one to watch and probably uh, would make him a, a very central character who could testify about many of the uh, uh, developments uh, uh, portrayed in active measures. In this movie. Absolutely. What we don't know is is um, how um, you know expansive the subpoena is and what they're asking Weisselberg to, to to give information on. But um, we will we, we will find out presumably. Um, one of the people who is um, interviewed in the movie is uh, Eric Swalwell, the Democratic congressman um, from. Um, Northern California, who is on the Intel Committee uh, that's been probing all of this and also on the Judiciary Committee. And uh, he will be uh, calling in um, after uh, we speak to both the director and the writer uh, of Active Measure. And he'll be both talking about the movie itself. um, And uh, we'll also be asking him about Don McGahn and some of the other uh, developments, recent developments in the investigations. All right. Now let's get to the film, Active Measures, uh, opening today in uh, theaters in New York and Los Angeles, also available on iTunes. We are joined by the director, Jack Bryan, and uh, uh, co-producer and writer, Marley Clements. Jack and Marley, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you for having us. We're very excited to be here. So, look, there's so much to talk about in this film, uh, and I want to get to a lot of it. But let's just start out with the title, Active Measures. Uh, explain where that came from came from, and why you uh, used it as the title for this movie. Yeah, so that's an old Soviet term that's uh, still used for uh, Russian attempts to, infil- or to affect politics around the world, usually through intelligence operations or surreptitious means. And uh, uh, clearly, you are drawing the parallel between what the KGB did during the Cold War and what we saw during the 2016 election with uh, uh, Donald Trump. Well, I would say that what they did during the Cold War uh, was a far cry from what they did in 2016. That uh, if you look at the Cold War, you see, I guess in the 30s, you see uh, a, a lot, a lot of activity. But in the 80s, they try to you know go after Reagan's campaign. They approach Kennedy in 60, I believe. But the amount of actual work and operators and officers and just the the size of the operation here was bigger than ever before. 
Right. In the United States, although certainly, uh, you know, Soviet active measures was uh, were quite active during the 70s and 80s, the uh, planting of disinformation about the CIA being the cause of AIDS or creating the AIDS crisis and, you know, other other claims that were uh, clearly designed to destabilize and delegitimize the American government goes way back. Yes, but even in that claim, for example, like that's a very prevalent belief right now. And they push that claim that the AIDS, the CIA sort of AIDS, but that is was based in communities that they had access to. They had access to African-American communities because they were doing seemed some funding of some subversive groups. Uh, and so that was able to sort of filter out through that community. What happened with the birth of social media is that they could find their own communities whoever they wanted. And so they could self-select. Well, and of course, Jack and Marley, uh, Vladimir Putin, who is in some ways uh, the most fascinating character um, in your film and uh, in a kind of a real kind of villain, um, is steeped in the art of active measures from his days as a KGB agent. Um, uh, Tell us a little bit about how you were able to uh, put together such a rich portrait of Vladimir Putin. I mean, there's amazing archival material. Um, Tell us about that process. Sure. Yeah, I think that uh, you know we went into this knowing that we had two sort of main characters, and those were Trump and Putin. And we spent a lot of time in our first few weeks just watching hours and hours and hours of footage, um, and reading every Putin book, and sort of picking the things that we felt were the most interesting about him. He is an incredible sort of Bond villain character, and so he's easy to find things on. And we sort of just picked, I think, the things that we thought were the most compelling and fit our narrative and really showed who he was. And what and who was he? What, what, what is your sort of bottom line assessment of, of Putin, both in terms of um, his, his character uh, and also his ability to, uh, to pull things off? Well, he's a KGB agent. I think at heart he will always be that. He was really, really upset by the fall of the wall and the, you know, Soviet Union becoming so much smaller. And so from there, I think that, you know, that is sort of his heart. He wants to build that back up. He wants to make Russia great again, you know. Uh, along the lines of the uh, uh, amazing archival footage, I loved the line in the very positive review you got from Variety, in which they talk about how the movie kicks off with a fascinating p- portrait of Putin's rise to power, complete with some great er- e- early photographs of him in which he looks like Ilya Kuryakin crossed with Alex from A Clockwork Orange. Now, um, uh, you guys are way too young to remember who Ilya Kuryakin was, but he was the sidekick in A Man from Uncle. Uh, uh, but, you know, a show some of us used to watch uh, back in the days of the Cold War. Uh, but, you know, those early photographs, and, uh, uh, these are his K- official KGB photographs? Some of them. I, I mean, the, the the research in terms of the archival was uh, a large part of, I think, why we felt comfortable doing this. We, you know, we're, we're not established documentary filmmakers, but I think that we knew that we would be like battering rams, just watching footage every hour of every day, scrolling through old intelligence reports, old lawsuits, and just spending every minute we had going through all this footage. Uh, and so, yeah, we, it, it's a big cross. Some of it is stuff that was released by the Kremlin as sort of propaganda for them. Some of it is old photos that have that largely turn up on like pro-Putin websites. It was a, a wide, a really wide search. And 
let me. I want to ask you about one particular um, uh, moment, uh, and then I, and then I want to actually step back and 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 kind of pull the camera lens back a little bit. But again, on Putin, um, which I think Mike uh, referenced um, in his uh, in his open. Um, that scene where he is uh, kind of bringing the oligarchs uh, to heel, the relationship that he has with the oligarchs uh, in Russia is fascinating, and it it goes back and forth. And at this particular moment, um, he is um, uh, uh, clearly asserting his power over them. And and this is the quote: uh, "You ran around like cockroaches when I said I was coming." Uh, it, where did how did you get that and um, and what was going through your minds when you first saw that uh, uh, that clip? Uh, I that we got uh, from it was a, it's a basic, BBC four part series, I believe. BBC, but it was it was originally filmed as a piece of Russian propaganda. It was not completely staged, but it was staged enough, and it was as Putin was sort of coming back into power. Uh, so this clip got a lot of traction internally in Russia. Uh, and it sort of made its way in a couple of uh, out in a couple of outlets. Uh, but yeah, that was a, a fascinating clip. And I think that uh, it, what's interesting is the way that it also is how Putin wanted to present himself. And it was very important. I mean, the image that he presents internally is more important than anything else. Um, that he's able to present himself as a strong leader and not what he is, which is an amazingly corrupt official. Um, you know, you also uh, got access to a lot of really interesting voices in this film and uh, key players. And we've got a clip uh, from your trailer. Putin has worked to undermine democracies across the globe. He made his way up through the KGB. He learned how to maneuver politically. The Russian mafia is an adjunct of the Russian government. And they've helped maintain Mr. Putin's power. To the point where Putin may well be the wealthiest man on the face of the planet. How does Russia launder money into America? Uh, <laughs> everything I know that's interesting, I can't tell you. So I heard there uh, Hillary Clinton, John McCain, who you interviewed, uh, and I want to ask you about that. And then I guess that last uh, bite is from uh, Michael McFall, the former U.S. Uh, ambassador to Russia. So um, Hillary Clinton and John McCain, both very prominent in the film. Um, Marley, how would you get them to uh, appear? Uh, Well, I think that what we did first was we reached out to think tankers and diplomats and academics of all sorts, right, that had worked with the more high profile names in the past on all of these issues who were on the ground during these events. And from there, um, sort of built a base of who we would be interviewing. And by the time we reached, you know, Hillary and McCain, we had a product that, you know, they felt comfortable with because there were other people who had already done the interview who they trusted. Um, And I think that it was also just a very compelling story. I think Hillary and McCain both have been two of the strongest voices on Putin and protecting democracy in Eastern Europe, uh, former Soviet states especially. And so uh, they really, really know this subject and care about it. And I think that it was... A project they wanted to be a part of and then having the people that they had trusted ambassador Pfeiffer McFall all of these people right. uh, made it an easier decision for him when did you interview McCain May 19th 2017 so this is before his diagnosis it with, was. with cancer and it is worth noting that one of the pallbearers he selected uh-huh. for his funeral 
uh, was Vladimir Karamurza, who is one of the most uh, outspoken and inspiring Russian human rights activists and who has been poisoned twice twice uh, by uh, uh, by the mo- most likely the FSB. One, one last shot at Putin uh, uh, and Trump, really, from McCain, f- from the grave. Right, right. Now, you, uh, as the well, variety- Also, one thing, though, sure. you forgot to mention, we uh, also got very lucky and managed to interview best-selling author and famed journalist <laughs> Michael right. Isikoff. Yes, I noticed uh, he was in there. Uh, and uh, this is uh, during the time I was writing Russian but Roulette, but Mike's uh, so bashful, he didn't have. want to bring it up. So yeah. we're glad you did, Jack. Still available yeah. on Amazon. Hey, what are we plugging here? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want us, I want us to like just step back for a moment because that clip that we just played shows all of these interesting strands that you know become intertwined. You know, you've got uh, the, the oligarchs, you've got money laundering, you've got organized crime. Um, you you know, you've got Putin's rise. Obviously, you. You know, eventually you have the attack on the 2016 election. Um, but what is the overarching theory of the case? What did you what are you setting out to show here that people should understand? Uh, I think that there's there's sort of two things to that. One is I think that uh, the Russian or the, the, the Russian operation in 2016 was not uh, unique. It was not the first time the Russians had run that exact playbook. Uh, and we wanted to show how that they had perfected that, refined it and learned how to do it. And then the other side, I think the biggest thing that people can take away is that the Donald Trump's association with not necessarily Vladimir Putin, but shady Russian actors that are state actors go back to the 80s and that that's an important part of the narrative. And, you know, beyond that, you make a uh, uh, a strong case uh, for the idea that the Trump organization has been used to launder Russian money. And that has certainly been something that has been out there uh, in been much talked about, much written about. Um, but. You know, the evidence is still murky uh, and um, and what it all adds up to is is unclear. Um, you seem to be saying in this film uh, that uh, Trump was a knowing participant uh, in uh, the Russian effort to launder money through his businesses. Um, tell us what your basis for that is. Well, I mean, I think it's it's certainly uh, the most likely, in my opinion, a- uh, explanation. I mean, one of the things that I think people give Trump an unfair pass for is they assume that because he doesn't know anything about policy, he doesn't know anything about foreign affairs, he doesn't know anything about history, that he doesn't know anything. And everybody that I've spoken to that's ever worked with Trump says he knows everything that's going on in his organization. And that, in fact, that's the only thing he knows anything about. Uh, and so it's it strains credulity for me that they are getting massive amounts of financing from various different sketchy sources uh, and he wouldn't know about it. This was at a time when he was desperate for money and uh, it was it wasn't like it was flowing in everywhere and he could just miss these deals. Uh, so I, I think that it's uh, and also he was working directly with the sketchy people that were doing it. I mean, uh, Felix Sater, who got seems to be very connected to the Russian mafia. Uh, acquired a lot of financing for him, and, and also even things that he that Sater's not connected to the Trump uh, Toronto Tower, uh, that certainly seems to be funded through a uh, KGB connected guy, and then through Vinesh Kanom Bank, which is the Russian you know financing uh, bank uh, that chairman that Putin is the uh, is on the board of. It's basically Putin's personal piggy bank. Just to provide a little context here, this is this is at the time when. 
Uh, Trump builds his casino in Atlantic City, and it kind of implodes. And he this was at the time when he yeah, has like right. a maximum yeah. debt, right? Absolutely. So just a little context for yeah. it. So when we first start with the first sort of clear line of illegality that we see is a 1984 meeting with David Bogan that Trump takes, wherein he sells him five apartments. David Bogan is a Russian mobster. Uh, it, five, five apartments in Trump Tower. State Attorney General rules that that transaction was money laundering. But that at that point, it is, seems to be a casual sort of um, association. It doesn't seem to be that that is the key source of revenue in the Trump organization. But after Atlantic City in the 90s, he goes busto. He goes through a series of bankruptcies that really don't actually end until 2004. Uh, and by 2004, he is struggling to get any money into his organization. Uh, he's struggling to get any loans. And between the 2002 to 2004 period, this company called Bayrock, which run by this man, Felix Sater, who is certainly very connected to the Russian mafia, uh, and with money that seems to be coming from post-Soviet states almost exclusively. Uh, and they move into Trump Tower. Uh, Felix Sater has a business card, a, tr a Trump organization business card. He uses a Trump organization email address. Uh, and they are securing what very much looks like illicit financing. So in the film, uh, you uh, connect Felix Sater, the former advisor to the Trump organization, with Simone Mogilevich, who is probably the premier Russian organized crime boss uh, in, uh, in that country and has been on the FBI's most wanted list. And you make a lot of Mogilevich. I think you've got some footage. But – just for the record, I did reach out to Felix Sater um, uh, yesterday, uh, knowing we'd be doing this interview and knowing it would be coming up. And he did send me a statement uh, this morning um, in which he says, I have never known or met Mogilevich. My father has never met, known, or ever worked for Mogilevich. I have testified under oath about this to Congress, and it has been confirmed by law enforcement. Uh, and then he goes on to say, not only did I testify to Congress under oath, uh, about this, but it has been. Uh, but I would be willing to also take a lie detector test at the place of your choosing to prove I am telling the truth. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a couple of statements in there that I think are true. Uh, Which are? I, I believe that he probably has never met Mogilevich. I don't know that his dad never did. Uh, maybe not. I think his dad was definitely. I mean, he was a lieutenant for him, and uh, maybe they didn't meet him. I think Mogilevich is famously. Not, you know, uses yeah. cutouts and has a lot, you know, but certainly a lot of the figures associated with him. By the way, I will point out the irony that I think in the, in the in your movie, uh, there's a, a deposition of Donald Trump being asked about mm -hmm. uh, yeah, uh, about Seder. And yeah, he says, yeah. you know, I would not recognize Seder if he was in this <laughs> room right now, which is a practice a, line. A line Trump. that he's used. <laughs> yeah. but, but I should also point out that Sater sent me something uh, this morning, uh, which is a picture taken of him yesterday uh, in the Hamptons. So you might want to take a look at oh, it. Oh, wow. Uh, I think I see who it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's uh, Bill wow, Clinton. Wow, that's really awkward. With his arm around uh, Felix Sater. It's the villain in sure. your movie. Yeah. 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 Uh, Tell me when he starts uh, raising money for Bill. Yeah. Then, then, <laughs> then I'll have a sequel. Isikoff is, is, is still trafficking in pictures of Bill Clinton <laughs> with his arms around <laughs> <laughs> sleazy, you know, donors. So what do you make of that? So it's his response to what he says. I mean, I'll take it piece by piece. Yeah. Uh, the pump and dunk, dump stock scheme, right. which he was 100% involved in and convicted in, seems to certainly be connected to Mogilevich. Felix Sater, I think, is a very uh, charming character. He's very good in interviews, uh, for example. But I think he's also a liar. 
I mean, for example, for that pump and dunk stock scheme, he goes on TV and talks about how bad he feels about it, how horrible, but he never paid restitution. He managed to get out of it, and they conned little old ladies out of their money, and none of them got paid back. And so if he felt so bad about it, he certainly could have given them the money that he stole from them. But it is also worth noting, and, and you kind of did glance over this in the film, that he did cut a deal with the FBI, and he was a longstanding informant yeah. for the FBI for many, many years. And federal prosecutors have gone into court saying he provided valuable information to the United States government. So did Whitey Bulger. Genuinely, right. I mean, and, okay. and that's and when we right. ask when we asked law enforcement officials that we interviewed about uh, Felix Sater, that was the name that always came up. Is it's the dirty assets problem that the FBI and the CIA have, right. which is if you're going to have somebody who is an informant within a criminal organization, you have to allow that person to remain within that criminal organization. But but in the Whitey Bulger case, uh, the FBI took a pretty brutal beating and some at least one FBI agent went to federal prison because he was allowing Whitey Bulger to commit crimes while he was serving as an informant. Um, you don't have any evidence or do you that Felix Sater was committing some of these some of his crimes while serving as an FBI informant? Yeah, I, I think that uh, during the election alone, his emails with Michael Cohen could constitute conspiracy pretty easily where he's saying we're going to get our boy Donald elected. I'll get Putin on this program. Right. I think that alone could very easily be a conspiracy charge right there. And so, yeah, I think also when he is back channeling with Ukrainian officials on behalf of Trump in 2017 with Michael right. Cohen, I think before Trump's president, I think that also could be a conspiracy charge. Um, the, uh, I think that the, the money in the Trump Fort Lauderdale, uh, and in Trump Tower Soho is incredibly suspicious. For example, one of the sponsors on the project is this guy, Alexander Mashkevich, who is, um, part of a international group known as the trio. And he has been described several times as Mogilevich's personal banker. Um, so I think that while, uh, you know, I, I don't have access to a lot of infor- information that, you know, uh, police have access to. But in terms of what's simply publicly available, it's kind of hard to figure out another reasonable explanation. Especially because he is so close with the Kremlin. And, you know, we say in the movie in this sort of famous clip that he was able to get Ivanka to to sit in Putin's chair at his office in the Kremlin, right? And if you're just working for the FBI, if you're somebody who is just working for an organization that the Kremlin is not a fan of at all, and you have no connections to the Russian mob or the Russian government, you're not able to do that. He's definitely doing both. So why would federal prosecutors, um, including those directly supervised by then U.S. attorney in Brooklyn, Loretta Lynch, later attorney general under Barack Obama, have gone into court on a number of occasions and vouched for Felix Sater. Because I think he generally gives good information. Yeah. I mean, but I, but, but also, but, 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 but are you suggesting they knew about um, some of the no criminal acts? I have no I, – I, I think that – I have no idea what they knew. I have no way of having any access to that. It would be my suspicion that uh, if Felix's name came up in, uh, in their offices, it would be a, well, let's not look into it. But I, I have no that's, – that's a sense that I have just because every law enforcement officer we talked to, to this has said, Waddy Bulger problem or dirty assets problem. One, one of the um, kind of main subplots of this tale that you tell um, is uh, Putin asserting himself uh, on the world stage and particularly uh, uh, keeping 
the uh, some of these ex-Soviet republics in the fold, uh, Georgia, which he invades, and, U- and Ukraine, which he um, intervenes in um, in a pretty muscular way. Explain to listeners how that relates to the larger story and how it eventually relates to what happens in 2016. Sure. I think that... Uh One of the things that we did when we were first starting was look at those countries because there are patterns within this, right? The way that he intervenes in the election in Ukraine is very similar to what we see in the 2016 election. And then with Georgia, it's really interesting. Uh, There was a lot of patterns during their election, the Saakashvili-Ivanashvili parliamentary election as well. But they, um, after they invaded Georgia, I think that they felt that they lost a lot of credibility on the world stage. Um, nobody really liked that. And, and their militaries right. was kind of exposed as being weak. Exactly. I mean, I thought that was a fascinating kind of inflection, inflection point. Absolutely. And so I think at that point they decided, you know, this is the 21st century. Let's see how we can use technology to our advantage and how we can change up our warfare tactics and evolve to fit the 21st century. And so in, in, Information warfare. Information warfare. And they actually adopted... There's some dispute around whether this was officially adopted, but there is a doctrine called the Gerasimov Doctrine that um, sort of lays out exactly, you know, how to use social media, how to uh, use all of these tactics to conduct warfare, um, information warfare, non-kinetic, the the switch of non-kinetic, you know, going forward. Asymmetrical warfare that Russia uh, can't compete with the United States uh, as uh, on a purely military basis. But the other part of the Gerasimov doctrine was that this is is the future of warfare. And it levels the the playing field. Yeah. Destabilizing the enemy through disinformation and propaganda, social media exploitation, and uh, use of cyber And you even see it within right. their kinetic warfare still. I mean, with the invasion of Crimea, they you know wanted to have that plausible deniability of these are just little green men. And in fact, they are Russian forces, you know, right? Marley, and still in the Donbass, actually. So, look, I think that the film really does uh, uh, illuminate a lot about uh, both Putin's rise to power and the use of these techniques and how much more aggressive uh, the Russians have been culminating in, the two, in what they did in 2016 election. But when you get to um, Trump and the uh, issue of money laundering, I think that's where the movie is likely to be a lot more controversial because there is a lot of dots that it's still hard to connect. And let's start out with one, which you deal with in the film, and certainly got a lot of attention, and those are the Deutsche Bank loans. At a time when no financial institution, after all the bankruptcies you referenced, uh, would not lend to the Trump organization, Deutsche Bank did. Um, And at the same time, Deutsche Deutsche Bank was engaged in uh, money laundering in Russia that it was later fined for. But what is the connection uh, between the Russian money laundering that they were apparently doing for certain of their customers in Russia and the loans to Donald Trump? Um, it, lots of people were getting loans from Deutsche Bank at this time because it's a major international financial institution. Does that mean anybody who got loans from Deutsche Bank was uh, getting laundered Russian assets? What connects the loans to Deutsche Bank to Russian money laundering? 
Yeah, so I, I think that there's a few things going on there. I, obviously, not everybody that got loans from Deutsche Bank were part of a Russian, Russian money laundering scheme. Um, but in addition, I think that one thing that's important to keep in mind is, is that actually a lot of that laundering was happening in the New York office. Uh, I, I don't remember what percentage we mentioned in the film, but a, a sizable percentage within the hundreds of millions of dollars was done out of the New York office. I think 300 and something million. Um, so there's that aspect of it, that it's happening in the office where he's, he's doing that. Secondly, uh, but again, New York office, they're going to be no, lending I'm, to lots of people. Is, I'm, right. I'm building. I'm just getting started. Yeah. Come on. Right. I mean, you want me to do a half hour? Right. The, um, uh, but so, so there's that aspect of it. There's also the aspect that this is happening at a time when he certainly seems to be getting a lot of sort of illicit money from the Russians. Uh, also the guy who is in charge of that. Uh, that operation who gets fired when it's revealed that this is all Russian money laundering. The CEO. The CEO, right. uh, Joseph Ackerman, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, gets hired by the Bank of Cyprus right afterwards by Wilbur Ross. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that is another sort is of... Is Wilbur kind of, Ross already in Donald Trump's circle? Is he someone... I don't think he is at this yeah. point. I, I don't have a, a real answer to that, he was but I don't chair know. Of but the bank of, he was chair, Ross of, was yeah. chair of the Bank of and, Cyprus. And of course later, right. just so uh, later, he becomes uh, Secretary of Commerce yeah. under Donald Trump. And also, Rublev is part of, is also a uh, on that board of the Bank of Cyprus, uh, uh, and he ends up buying explain, this two thousand in two thousand eight. Tell us during, who Rublev. So uh, he is the uh, Russian uh, potash king. He's the the fertilizer king, uh, and he uh, in two thousand and eight buys a house piece of property in Palm Beach. This is after the financial crisis, or as the financial crisis is ongoing. He buys a uh, part a house in Palm Beach from Trump for I believe ninety four million dollars. The that he had purchased, I believe, two years earlier for $35 million. Uh, and it's a sale that didn't seem to make any sense uh, and is sort of popped as a very likely uh, part of illicit uh, money laundering. But back to Deutsche Bank, I think the other thing and, and the reason why it's, it's suspicious to us especially is that from everything that we've heard, it made absolutely no sense that he would, they would loan to him. Not just that they would loan to him because he was bankrupt, but because he would sue them. He would refuse to pay them back. I mean, there have been lawsuits between Deutsche Bank and Donald Trump since his first loan there, uh, and they not not they don't just stop; they expand their loans and start loaning to Jared Kushner as well. So the fact that the behavior doesn't mirror or isn't suggestive of any other type of behavior, I think, is also one of the other red flags on the Deutsche Bank um, business. Do we have though any specific allegation from anybody who was involved in these loans, either from Deutsche Bank or the Trump Organization, or any documents that have surfaced that make the connection that you try to make in this movie? Well, no, I think that at, at a certain point, that's a thing that uh, for something like that, that only um, law enforcement's going to have, and I don't think that we make the claim that this is. Necess- I think what the claim that we are making is well, that you this- go pretty far in the well, movie making the claim, the claim sure. that he I, I is in the right. pocket of Russian interests oh, well, that, who have been laundering is, money well, that, through yes. his uh, uh, organization as, as for as, many years. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, and that I've no problem going with. And I think the Deutsche Bank stuff is correct as well. I, I think what we're saying is what we're saying with Deutsche Bank is that it, it is one piece of data that doesn't really have a reasonable explanation. And this is going on in a whole pile of other money laundering data that that right. seems to be popping. So it's it's not that it's in isolation yeah. uh, is a I think a, a smoking gun, but I think as a pattern of behavior, it is incredibly telling. And if there's a reasonable explanation for that, I, I would love to hear it. 
Um, the uh, you know my sense is look on the Rubleyev uh, uh, transaction uh, in which he clearly overpays uh, for the property and then sells it to uh, uh, Donald Trump um, or t- to Trump buys it yeah from him um, clearly suspicious and a lot of questions um, but on you know the the fact that a lot of Russians bought up properties in Trump. Towers, um, you know, I, I'm not sure what one makes of that. Well, but but there were likely lots of Saudis who were buying up properties in Trump Tower. Lots of people from all over the world. But I think that you're so I think part of the point. Why? Is, why is the Russians buying more suspicious and evidence that they are laundering money through Donald Trump's uh, organization? So I would say, uh, first of all, a few things on that. Yeah. Second of, first of all, the Russian buying is outweighing everybody else. I mean, you look at, for example, just the Sunny Isles condos. After Trump's condos go in there, that area becomes known as Little Moscow. That that is... Signage in Russia and Cyrillic across it. Something like 64% of the properties that were sold in Sunny Isles are shell companies as well, which is incredibly unusual and incredibly suspicious. Of the ones we know about, one-third of them are owned by Russian. So it is a huge outweighed amount of Russian money. Secondly, it's not just that they're buying. And also, by the way, a lot of those guys have been arrested for money laundering separately. Uh, secondly, uh, it is not just that they're buying the properties. In the Trump Soho, it appears to be that the funding for the project itself could have been laundering. Uh, and so it's not funding just, from where? From whom? Uh, well, I mean, the, the funding through Bayrock, uh, that that was illicit money. Uh, that so and also the I think it's it's not unlikely that the. Uh, Alex Snyder's connection in the Trump uh, Toronto Tower what was his name uh, Bierstein, I want to say uh, that he he uh, got some of the financing for that, and that seems very. Uh, then, there's the, there, then there's the then uh, there's the the Trump Tower in Baku. Yeah, that, <laughs> not, yeah. not exactly yes. not exactly a luxury tourism destination. Yeah, with with uh, money from guys that are mixed up in the Iranian National Guard, uh, Panama. So it's not just that there are, there are and it, yeah. Russians buying, and it does certainly seem like money laundering. A lot of them actually get charged with money laundering. But it's also the initial development of it. Uh, so it's it's all sides. Um, we're running out of time here. So I just want to get your sort of what do you want the takeaway from this movie to be? Uh, um, clearly, a lot of people it's going to get a lot of attention and a lot of people are going to watch it. But um, when people get done with this movie, what do you want them to think and do? That uh, for me, it's that I want them to know and to think that they are they are actors in this democracy, and if they don't stand up for it, it it's actually a terrible risk right now. And let me just follow up on that. After having gotten through this movie, um, where do you think things are going to go? I mean, obviously, you're you must be following the Mueller investigation <laughs> yeah. closely. I All mean, the investigations, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, uh, you guys Jack had a good May? bet on it, actually. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So I asked because so I know yeah. you have a theory. Yeah. yeah. So Mike and I, last <laughs> night after uh, more than a couple beers, uh, we made a, a $5 bet. Yeah. And I am betting that this time next year, on this day next year, Donald Trump will not be in office. And he is betting that he will. I, I will say in his defense, he thinks that there's a 20% chance that I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, hey, here's the, those numbers fluctuate daily. So the commitment that I want yeah. from both of you, I think I can get it from Mike, yeah. is that um, 
a year from what is a year from now? Or a year from yesterday? A year from yesterday. August twenty. A year from yesterday, you guys b- both come back on Skullduggery. All of you come back yes. on Skullduggery, and one or the and other collects the m- money. Yes. Changes hands. Collects the five dollars. I'm absolutely there. Jack and Marley, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery, and good luck with the movie. Thank you so much. Good luck. Great to have you on. We'll be back with more Skullduggery. Um, And now we have on the line um, somebody who appears in the movie, uh, Congressman Eric Swalwell, uh, Democrat, a member of the House Intelligence Committee. Congressman, welcome back to Skullduggery. Well, thanks for having me back, guys. And uh, excited to talk about this film that premieres, I think, this Friday. Yeah, uh, premiering today, uh, actually. Um, So... um, uh, you're in this movie, and the movie uh, talks a lot about what it um, uh, uh, laying out a case that uh, Donald Trump and the Trump Organization has been compromised by Russian money for many years, and that this is the real sort of smoking gun, as it were, when it comes to Trump and 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 Russia. It's a financial connection. Um, is that something you concur in? I, I do. And, you know, a lot of people, they watch President Trump uh, and the way he acts with Vladimir Putin right now. And they, you know, they ask themselves, what does Vladimir Putin and the Russians have on Donald Trump? And I think reflexively, people, you know, believe there must be something. And what I think this film does best is it shows you what that something is. And if you had to sort of... Uh, uh, summarize it uh, for uh, voters out there, for the public. How would you do so? You know, I, I describe the, you know, the film as documenting the longstanding personal, political, and financial interests that Donald Trump and people around him have had with the Russians. And you know, again, for, for many of us, you know, who closely followed the 2016 election, it may have seemed like. The Russians like Donald Trump, Donald Trump like the Russians, and that was, you know, the beginning and the end of it. But I think the film lays out that, you know, for a very long time, you know, Donald Trump sought to do business in Russia. He had people uh, in his businesses in the United States, you know, who were Russian Americans with ties, uh, you know, to Russian mobsters or Russian intelligence services. And so that this is actually, uh, you know, something that materialized over a long period of time. And it wasn't something that just kind of came out of nowhere. And I, I think that's what gives me, you know, goosebumps. I, I still get goosebumps when I watch it. Uh, but to just think, wow, this is something uh, that had been going on for a long time. And we didn't realize it probably until it was too late. So let's sort of, if we could sort of break down some of the uh, pieces of evidence that are presented in the film. Um, you know, there's the Deutsche Bank loans, there's the transaction in Florida, there's the many Russians who have uh, bought properties in Trump Tower, there's the role of p- people who worked for Trump uh, in his organization who had many ties to Russia. But uh, look, you've been uh, uh, on the House Intelligence Committee during this uh, whole period of time since uh, January 2017, when the committee was supposedly going to investigate links between the Trump campaign and uh, and and Moscow, um, uh, there's a good chance, uh, if the polls are correct, that you might actually be in power uh, uh, in the House, uh, take back control in the November elections. Are there aspects 
uh, of this, of the financial ties that uh, you would want to investigate if you get subpoena power uh, starting in January 2018 in the House? Uh, absolutely. And, and I believe the film you know, kind of gives a nice roadmap of the case uh, that you would want to pursue. You know, and the film, you know, just like the House Intelligence Committee, did not have uh, the luxury of subpoenas to dig deeper into a lot of the ties that on the surface are alarming. Uh, but a Democratic majority, you know, would have subpoena power and would be able to look at, you know, the financial lending that, uh, you know, was afforded to Donald Trump, the different deals that he struck, the home that he sold, you know, in uh, Palm Beach, uh, way above uh, market rate at a time when the uh, financial markets were in a free fall. So, uh, you know, all of this that you know, looks like smoke uh, and is quite concerning. I, you know, we would be able to probe uh, much further. Uh, but all of that being said, uh, Mike and Dan, you know, members of the House Intelligence Committee, I know, are not interested in just conducting a redundant investigation. If we believe that Bob Mueller and his team and the Senate investigation has been able to tell the American people what happened, we don't want to go back in time just, you know, to be able to do it. You know, we only want to uh, investigate uh, these contacts if. There are still unanswered questions. Well, well, Congressman, um, that, that raises a question which maybe you have some insight into, which is, I mean, do we know uh, whether uh, Bob Mueller and his team of prosecutors are are looking into uh, these um, financial entanglements and say, for example, uh, uh, Deutsche Bank um, and uh, and uh, and, you know, th- those loans um uh, to Donald Trump and the whole money laundering question? Do we do we know that he's actually looking at that? So we don't know. That's a good thing because that, I think, demonstrates the fair investigation that Bob Mueller has given the president and that there's no leaks and, you know, it's not being done uh, in the public. Uh, there's, of course, there were reports. Uh, I remember, I think it might have been a McClatchy story that, you know, Deutsche Bank uh, was uh, subpoenaed and then, you know, I think that was shot down. So it, it's unclear. I mean, I, I do think that Part of me wonders if Mueller is going to stay so uh, closely within his mandate that he's not going to look at, you know, anything financial of the president, uh, which, again, if that's the case, because of all of the concerns uh, that are there, I think it would be the responsibility of Congress to do that, to look at tax returns, to look at where uh, the loans uh, were coming from. And remember, of course, Bob Mueller can only tell the American people what he can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. So if, you know, he has something that's very concerning, but, you know, perhaps the witnesses are foreign and he can't compel them to testify and therefore he couldn't bring that case forward. That may be something that the American people should know, but Bob Mueller can't prove in a criminal court. And so that, again, would fall on Congress. Well, you mentioned the tax returns, um, and that may be a a key uh, part of the evidence here and a kind of a roadmap to Donald Trump's uh, uh, finances, which have and his companies, which have you know been shrouded in secrecy. So, uh, if the Democrats take control of the House and you have subpoena power, um, will Congress be able to get a hold of of, uh, of Donald Trump's tax returns? I mean, the, you know, there's still privacy considerations there, aren't there? Yeah, but you know, he is the president of the United States. He's not a private citizen, and you know, every president going back to Nixon has shown the country. Uh, their tax returns. And so I I don't think a Democratic Congress would allow Donald Trump to be above that. It's also something that the Ways and Means Means Committee uh, can request, uh, and it doesn't even have to go to a a vote uh, for Congress. So I I do expect that that would uh, happen. And again, 
if he has nothing to hide as the leader of the free world, he should welcome, you know, his tax returns, uh, you know, to be made available uh, to Congress. Uh, of course, as you and I know, I think the reason he doesn't want them out there is because he is afraid of what they would show uh, about him and perhaps, you know, where uh, funding and lending was coming from. But when we get into some of these other areas, like, say, the Deutsche Bank loans, um, I, I detected you, you were a little hedging there. You said if the questions are unanswered by Mueller, and they may well be because, yeah. as you pointed out, it's not clear that's within Mueller's mandate to investigate events relating to the 2016 election. Uh, and they're not covered by the Senate, and I think that's also likely because uh, it's not clear the Senate has made too much more headway than you did in a lot of these areas. Um, uh, so would you w- would you subpoena Deutsche Bank? Would you call, say, Alan Weisselberg, the, the, uh, the yeah. uh, accountant at the Trump organization, to answer speci- and subpoena him to answer specific questions about whether there was knowing participation, whether there was Russian money that went yeah. to the Trump organization through those loans and whether it was known to top officials of the Trump organization. Yeah, and, and Mike, I don't want to speak for those potential chairpersons, but I think the, that they would be relevant witnesses. Uh, Deutsche Bank, uh, Mr. Weisselberg, you know, individuals at the Trump organization who could speak to, uh, you know, the money, where it came from and where, uh, how it was uh, distributed. Um, and, and again, I don't, don't mean to hedge. I, I also just want people to know that we're not going to conduct investigations that are just picking scabs, uh, that if, you know, matters are settled and resolved, uh, you know, we're not going to just go back and do an investigation over again just because we can, because I don't think that's productive. But if there are unanswered questions, then, you know, I, I think the Deutsche Bank uh, lending area is one that may be unanswered. Uh, we owe it to the American people to tell them, uh, you know, how this president as a businessman, uh, you know, received funding, especially at a time uh, when no one else, no major banks in the United States and we're giving him uh, Michael Cohen, obviously uh, a guy very much in the news right now, has now pled guilty. His lawyer, Lanny Davis, has been on TV suggesting he wants to uh, uh, tell some things to the uh, to Robert Mueller. Uh, but he's also said a lot of Lanny Davis has a lot of contradictory things about what Michael Cohen may or may not know. Um, uh is he going to be called back before the House Intelligence Committee and grilled about uh, some of what his lawyer has suggested he might know? If we were doing our job, he would be called back uh, before the midterm elections. But, you know, again, the Republicans on our committee, they would rather bury the evidence uh, than unearth it and show it to the American people. So I don't expect him to come back. You know, I, I'm also you know suspicious of Michael Cohen's uh, motives uh, at this time. You know, I, I would want anything he said to also be corroborated by some outside uh, evidence. Uh, it's not clear to me, you know, as you hear these uh, proffers that he may have information about the Trump Tower meeting or may have information about, you know, email hacks that were previewed to candidate Trump. Uh, and then that's dangled out there and then pulled back as Mr. Davis did it. I don't know if he does have that information. And then he was approached by the Trump team. And either offered a pardon or, you know, threats were made or if he was just, you know, Mr. Davis and Mr. Cohen just trying to uh, give this story more oxygen. So I think for all of those reasons, he should certainly have to come back and clear up his testimony. Congressman, um, we are approaching um, the midterm elections. Labor Day is just around the corner. And 
the conventional wisdom is that Bob Mueller will not uh, uh, bring any indictments uh, as we approach uh, the midterm elections and no major public investigative actions uh, so as not to uh, improperly influence the election. Um, first of all, do you think uh, that's the right course of action? And secondly, um, should should his investigation um, after the election just continue and, and – uh, you know uh, how long um, can can Mueller continue this this investigation? It can't go on um, interminably. That's right. They should go as long as they need. You know, following the evidence where it is, and you know, not letting witnesses uh, dictate the course of the investigation, as Donald Trump, I think, has tried uh, to do. I can't say uh, whether or not you know more indictments will come. My my personal belief uh, is that. You know, after what we saw with uh, Secretary Clinton and the investigation being reopened uh, back in 2016, just days before the election, that if they tr- if the FBI and the DOJ are, are truly trying to, uh, you know, disavow uh, how that was conducted, that yeah, but there is if if we're just talking a 60 day delay, uh, that you know, that's okay with me as long as the investigation is still allowed to proceed and interview witnesses and subpoena records. Uh, before that, I, I, frankly, I don't have you know strong feelings one way or the other uh, on that. But I think no person controls the direction of this investigation more uh, than Donald Trump. And if he would just sit down and answer the questions that have already been given to him, I think this would wrap up a lot sooner than if he does not do that. Um, what do you make of Don McGahn uh, leaving as White House counsel? Well, it's it, hard to, to read into that. You know, White House counsels, uh, tip, you know, counsel that the White House typically, uh, you know, this is about the length of time that they stay. So I, I really don't know. I mean, if the reports are true that he was interviewed for 20 uh, plus hours, uh, you can imagine uh, how uncomfortable that probably makes Donald Trump, because if he had nothing to say, uh, it probably would have been a much shorter uh, interview. Uh, but you know, so I, is, I, I've long been. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, if if uh, if uh, your party ends up in control of the House um, uh, after the elections, uh, would Don McGahn um, be? Uh, uh, do you think he'd be called uh, to testify before um, the intelligence committees or, or other committees investigating Russia and the election? Yeah, and I also sit on the Judiciary Committee, and you know, I, I do believe Mr. McGahn's a relevant witness in all of this, and he is someone that you know, had we you know, been given the opportunity to conduct a thorough investigation uh, on the House Intelligence Committee as someone who we would have liked to, you know, brought in, especially uh, seeing that, you know, he, Don McGahn, was instructing different witnesses uh, as to what they could say and could not say. And you had this unique circumstance where Steve Bannon was asserting a privilege even on information after he left the White House saying that he Uh, could not discuss it because of a presidential privilege that was uh, directed to him by Don McGahn. So uh, I I do think, you know, Don McGahn's role uh, in this and, you know, whether he sought uh, to have uh, Bannon and others cover up information uh, is something that we should probe. So so you're saying that that Don McGahn could be a key witness in the um, obstruction uh, part of the investigation that that you would that that Democrats would pursue if they were in control? 
he's seen some things, I guess, is uh, how I put it. <laughs> okay. But, but, but it, it, that does make him a potential witness. But let me just say, uh, just getting back to Michael Cohen for a moment. Uh, look, uh, in during Watergate, Iran-Contra, every major political scandal in the last you know, 50 years, and even going back further, Congress conducted public hearings in which the key fact witnesses were uh, uh, testified in public before the TV cameras so the American people could understand and know what the facts are, regardless of whether a special prosecutor brings a, uh, a, a criminal case for a violation of a federal statute or not. Um, uh, only in this matter of high public interest um, has all the testimony of key fact witnesses been behind closed doors so that, frankly, members of Congress could go out and spin and suggest what they said, but we don't get to see them and hear what they said. Can you at least commit uh, that if you get back control of the House on judiciary and maybe Intel as well, perhaps especially Intel, since uh, you've had the primary, that committee is at the primary goal, that you will demand that hearings be done in public with key, these key witnesses appearing before the TV cameras so we can, we can all get to see and hear them. Yeah, Mike, I, I think going forward, uh, hearings should be done publicly. And you and I, we've talked about this, you know, before, and I, I'm kind of pulled in two different directions. One direction is, you know, the former prosecutor in me who wants to interview witnesses and not allow witnesses to tailor their answers because of what they've seen publicly and to kind of, you know, get their story straight, uh, you know, because they know that something is damaging, something damaging is out there. So that that's part of me, but I, I don't think that's the reason that these hearings weren't public. I think they weren't public because the Republicans thought the material uh, was embarrassing and they didn't want to expose their party and their president uh, to a public display uh, of all of these concerning contacts. Now, your concern is one that I'm concerned about, too, which is the public, you know, is not hearing, you know, what occurred. And you're right. You know, only the members uh, hear it. And then, you know, different leaks uh, or sources uh, on the committee, you know, come out and it's hard to really sort through that. So I, I think going forward, considering that I think Bob Mueller has interviewed all of the relevant witnesses, uh, unless there's a really compelling reason, you know, the American people should hear uh, just exactly who Donald Trump and his team worked with. Uh, on the Russian side, uh, what they did uh, and, you know, what their stories are uh, in a public forum. Um, Last question. Um, You are an Iowa native and um, it got a lot of attention uh, lately, uh, recently, when you traveled to your uh, native state and I think attended a political fundraiser and uh, uh, it it inspired talk uh, that you are, in fact, considering running for president. Are you? I am considering it. Uh, But first things first, I want to win my seat also help as many Democrats win as possible. I think the only way to you know, cut our time in hell in half and protect people's health care and paychecks and scrub out corruption is to have a Democratic majority in the Congress. So I'm going to do that. And then, oh, by the way, my wife and I are expecting a little girl uh, two days before the election. So, uh, you know, want to have a 
a healthy uh, baby girl come out and then uh, make a decision Okay, so so you are considering it, uh, even though it means you'll have to spend a lot of time away from your uh, new baby uh, <laughs> if you're running for president. What is your opening to run for president? How would you position yourself and make the case uh, that of all the many Democratic candidates out there, it should be you to run against Donald yeah, Trump well, if he's still in I, office in 2020? You know, I think it's my upbringing, you know, being the first in my family to go to college, the son of a, a cop and a mom who worked a number of jobs and believe that in America, if you work hard, that should add up to something and you do better for yourself and dream bigger for your kids. And so in that experience and in my work in Congress, you know, I think that that is evaporating that promise. And the only way to ensure it and guarantee it is if every person has a health care guarantee, if there's modern schools in every community, and that yeah, you but, but make sure that every Democrat is saying that. What what distinguishes no, you? I've been in these, you would make I've the case these, that you're I mean, the guy. Yeah. Well, I, I've been in these fights uh, for the last you know six years, uh, and I think people have seen that uh, when our democracy was on the line, I knew where uh, to stand, and. I've been across the country leading this group called Future Forum. It's our youngest Democratic members and have been inspired by this next generation uh, of talented Americans who just want a government that invests in them and believes in them and gives them the opportunity that they believe uh, they're capable of achieving. And so I think whoever our candidate is in 2020, it's going to be someone who offers new energy, new ideas and new leadership. Uh, And I put myself uh, in that mix. But again, I don't want to get ahead of myself because uh, the, the job to be done right now is to put Democrats in the majority and stand up for health care, paychecks, and rooting out corruption. Okay, th- this is really the last question. Uh, but to the extent that you are known <laughs> around the country, um, uh, it is because of the work that you've done um, on the, the the Russia investigation. And the, the kind of pundits in Washington will tell you, well, at the end of the day, that's not what people are going to vote on. Um, but do you... Do you think um, that that uh, that uh, investigating uh, Donald Trump um, and uh, and the Russian inter- intervention in our election actually would be an important dimension of your platform? Is that something that you would run aggressively on? I believe that it's what I learned that's important, and I think in a very if you were looking at this in a parochial way, you'd think that Russia only helped Donald Trump because they thought they'd get something out of it. But the reason I care so much about what they did is because I believe they were actually attacking the idea of America and that they don't really believe they can get much out of Donald Trump. He's a guy who couldn't organize a two car funeral, but they believe that if you have a country like our country, where it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you believe in, you can become anything, but that can be true anywhere. And they don't want that to be true in Russia. And as the movie points out in active measures, they have an oligarch system where it doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't add up to anything. And so if that could come to Moscow, the best way to beat that from coming to Moscow is to beat it at its origin in America. And right now that idea is under attack. And so I think being a defender of the idea of America when it was truly on the ropes, you know, is something that will be valued uh, by all Americans. Well, Congressman, uh, when you declare, if you declare, I can promise you, you will have <laughs> many uh, <laughs> opportunities to come back on Skullduggery. <laughs> and congratulations to you and your wife on your forthcoming baby. Thank As you. the father of two uh, beautiful girls, there's nothing better than girls.
Oh, thank you, guys. Okay. All right. Take thank care. You. Thanks to all our great guests for joining us on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. And Skullduggery is also on SiriusXM. Subscribers can catch the latest episode on POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time with replays at 10 p.m. on Saturday and Sundays at 2 a.m. and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.